Psychology Nerds, and welcome to another episode of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. I'm Alison Jane Martin-Garner, the new host of Psychology and Stuff, and I'm here with three wonderful guests who are going to be talking about voices and accents. I'm particularly excited for this episode because I'm hoping to get some answers about why my voice is so malleable. As regular listeners will know, I'm originally from the UK and I've lived in the US for about 10 years. But my British accent has all but disappeared. But it comes back when I speak to my mum, which is why it might be there a little bit right now, which has actually given you a little bit of a hint on who of our guests are for today. But never mind. Uh, let me start by formally introducing uh, my, my three wonderful guests. So the first is Dr. Elisa Monti the president and co-founder of the Voice and Trauma Research and Connection Group. Dr. Monty is also a certified vocal psychotherapist who uses the Montello method for performance wellness. She has years of experience working with individuals on trauma, emotion, attachment, voice, communication, self-expression, and performance. So thank you so much for joining us, Elisa. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm very grateful to be here. I'm doing great. Thanks. Um, so Elisa, you have a pretty subtle little accent there. Could you explain where your accent is from for the listeners? My accent is Italian. I'm Italian, even though the majority of people can't quite place me. Mm. They will sooner or later figure out I am not American. Some people catch it right away. Some people catch it two weeks into knowing me, mm. which is interesting. Uh, but nobody has ever guessed I'm Italian. They will guess European, but not Italian. Do Italians recognize that you're Italian if you're speaking in English? No. Oh, all right. So you're really... No, they really don't. Huh. How, uh, what other guesses do you get when you get European, but you don't get Italian? I think, you know, I'm trying to remember, because also I, I think right now in my mind, I'm mixing what people attribute to the way I look and to mm -hmm. the way I sound. So some people have told me I look Brazilian, but I don't think that I sound Brazilian. Okay, interesting, interesting. Yeah, I, I'm going to delve into that later, how we look <laughs> and how we sound and how they mix together. I uh, think they just said somewhere in Europe. They're like, you're from somewhere in Europe, but I don't know where. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Uh, so we're also joined by someone somewhere from Europe. Uh, so we're joined by Dr. Eilif Eichser, who is a fellow assistant uh, professor of psychology here at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. Um, uh, Eilif's work is, uh, her research is on stigma from a cross-cultural lens, and she'll be talking to us about accent stereotypes and how people may treat us differently based upon our voice. So thanks so much for being on the show, Eilif. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about your own accent? Yeah, of course. And uh, thank you for inviting. I'm excited to be here. Um, so I'm Turkish, and that's where my accent is from, and people usually can tell that I'm not American, so the awkward piece, awkward memory piece is there, but they usually are not able to place where I am from. Um, but if mm. I force them to guess, usually I get Polish and I have absolutely no idea why. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, so do you think that that, again, it might be based a little bit on what you look like or not really? I got it, I got it on different, like I got it, I, I think that could be why, because I'm I'm white, I'm a white girl, that, that might be why, but also I think I got it on the phone too before, 
and it's never Turkish. So Americans, I think for Americans, Turkish is not a salient group. So that never comes. And when I say, well, I'm Turkish, I mean, I'm European, but also like, not like European, European, I'm more like Mediterranean. <laughs> then I get like a random country um, from the area. It will always be something different. So there's no consistency over there. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for sharing. Uh, and so finally, we have a very special guest uh, who has no degrees, uh, but a great deal of experience in my voice. Uh, it's my mom, Mrs. Jean Smith. So thanks for joining us, mom. Hello. Hello. Uh, so I wonder if you could tell the audience a little bit about your accent, where it's from, and whether people recognize it. People always recognize that I'm English. There's never any doubt about it. I'm a mixture of London Essex, because... London, as you probably know, is surrounded by lots of different counties and you have a slight different accent from which county you come that borders on to London. So um, English people can tell I'm Essex as soon as I open my mouth. <laughs> um, but I've been living in the northwest of England for the last 30 odd years. So I've been told by my brother recently that he doesn't think I sound like anywhere in particular. All right, so your accent has softened eventually. Yes. And uh, do you think that um, our people from the northwest of England, which is where I grew up in a, in a smaller town, uh, do they, are they able to recognize where in London you're from? Oh, they know I'm definitely from the south. So they usually start off with south and they, they wait for you to say where, and I usually don't. <laughs> I like to pull the leg a bit and I'll get them to try and guess. But uh, I just say usually, well, I've been in the Northwest for a long time, but I was born in London, Essex area. And then they nod their heads because they think, yeah, it's also. Mm. So my hope is by having uh, having you on the show, Mum, that I'll start to speak uh, in a more British accent myself. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to hear myself speak right now to see if it's worked. Uh, but I, I also had a, a backup plan for what, what I would do if it didn't work, because I've also noticed that it comes out when I read British books. So I've got here an excerpt from Sherlock Holmes to read to see if it really brings it out. So I'm going to give this a go. <laughs> <laughs> I have the advantage of knowing your habits, my dear Watson, he said. When your round is so short, when you you walk, and when it's long, you use the hansom cab. And I perceive that your boots, although they are by no means dirty, I use, I cannot doubt that you are at present busy enough to justify the handsome cap. Excellent, I cried. Elementary, said he. So, is it working? Am I sounding? It, sounding is, working. it is working. <laughs> it started working really fast, actually. It started working, like, when you said Sherlock Holmes, it was only there. Wow. Very oh, fast. It sounds like you're an American reading English to me at the moment. <laughs> okay all right different perceptions there um I feel like I should have like the British national anthem playing maybe I can get the post-production team to add that in later um all right so uh mum the the English that I'm speaking right now or potentially not um how does it feel when you hear me hear me talk does it sound like I'm not your daughter anymore well you've been talking American for quite a few years it's getting more and more so that you can't hear the English. So I've got, I think, gradually just got used to the fact that my daughter's bilingual. Um, <laughs> I can't, you can't use the term bilingual here. We have two people that are actually bilingual. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I think of you as my bilingual daughter. Oh, um, that's, see, there yeah. you go. I should put that With on the all CD. these words that you use, it's been fun over the years, just, just talking about 
words being different, like when you sound sat on the couch, and I have to say, you mean the sofa. Um, <laughs> that that was, I, you know, you know, I know there are two words for couch, couch and sofa. But if you'd have asked me which one the American one is and which one the British one is, settee. I wouldn't be able to tell you. You usually say settee as well, and then you say you've got to go to your your oh, what's that cupboard you call it? Your closet. We don't yeah. have closets. There's no closets in England. They're all wardrobe. <laughs> Although I do think that there is actually a difference in meaning there, with a closet being, you know, a big thing that's built into the wall and a wardrobe being like an armoire. That mm -hmm. is covered, yeah. I, I, I see Aleph shaking her head. No. <laughs> so it, we tend it, to talk about words and their different meanings rather than the fact that you sound totally different. And you definitely get told off when you use certain words. Like or stuff. Yeah. My my mum has given me some feedback. I'm so sorry, listeners to this podcast. Apparently, I've been using the word awesome far too much. So I'm going to try and do that less. Uh, and we'll say things are brilliant and fantastic instead. <laughs> well, I think it's, I was shaking heavily on that because um, in Turkish, we have a lot of words from um, Arabic, Farsi and French. So wardrobe is one that we took um, probably from French. So it's the same word and it, it just means closet. <laughs> so I think I don't know. It's not my first language, but I think it's the same thing. I'm not yeah. sure. I'm being we unfair. need more mom feedback on this. <laughs> I, I feel I'm being unfairly criticized here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to shift gears because this is not the sort of hard hitting journalism that our, our listeners have come to expect. So I'm going to shift gears and pull back to our experts here and, and uh, first turning to you, Elisa. Um, so first, do you have any insight on, on why accents change so easily um, for some people and yet maybe for others, they keep an accent throughout the years? Do you have any insight on that? That is a really good question. You know, I think, you know, our voices are very plastic generally and not just by sound, but also by, you know, accent. And when it comes to like communication, we tend to sort of adapt to the communication of other people because that facilitates, you know, how well we can understand each other. And so I think that then some people, you know, for example, like you're, you know, coming closer to the American accent from the British accent, I think there was a way for you to create, you know, better communication with the people around you. Then in terms of the individual differences of, you know, for some people that happens faster or in a different way than others, I am not sure because I'm not very well versed in that research, <laughs> but it's really, I think it's really, really interesting. Yeah. But even just, you know, things like loudness or frequency, or it's like, if you go to someone and you whisper, th their, their instinct is going to be to whisper back and they're probably going to be like, why are we whispering? <laughs> and <laughs> I so think, right. yeah. Or if someone is very loud or if you're like, oh my God, they're going to be like, oh my God. And then they're going to be like, why are we talking like that? It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm so glad you brought my attention to that because I definitely do that too. And I hadn't really thought about it as part of the same habit that I have. Uh, so to, to broaden our conversation a little bit, I wonder if you could talk um, a bit about why voice is so important to us as humans. Uh, voice is my greatest passion. <laughs> well, voices are a unique communication instrument you know some people argue it's the most important communication instrument we have it's debatable but I'm definitely biased when it comes to voices and I think one of the powers the voice has compared to facial expressions and compared to body language is that they can carry messages across 
large distances. You know, if I, you know, smell smoke and I start panicking and yelling, everybody on my floor is going to be immediately alerted that something is going on and they are going to get to safety quicker. But if I just make a very disgusted face or if I collapse mm -hmm. onto the floor, not everyone might catch on that information that is essential for all of us quick enough. That's just like one of the many examples. Also, the, you know, the fact that voices are unique and therefore recognizable. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like when, you know, children and parents learn to recognize each other's voices very early in life from an evolutionary perspective, that's very important for survival. You know, you see this in humans and you see this in other animals as well, where recognizing your own parent, recognizing your own child creates safety in a much more efficient way than if voices couldn't do that. Yeah. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that uh, unique nature of each person's voice. So, so what is it that makes my voice sound different from yours? <laughs> it's because we have different vocal tracks. That sounds very, very simplistic, <laughs> but you know, a lot of people think of voices and their uniqueness at the level of the vocal folds. And really, when it comes to like, you know, what's going on in our throat at the phonatory level, we all tend to sound about the same, but really it's how that original sound from the source then becomes shaped by the structures above the larynx that creates the uniqueness of our voices. You know, we all have a different pharynx, a different oral cavity, a different nasal cavity. And that starts really shape, like shifting the original sound into what comes out as Alice and Jane. Mm. All right. So it's all to do with my nose, mom. You got that? <laughs> <laughs> That's, <laughs> what, That's what I'm hearing. Uh, all right. So, so now let's, let's really get into the, the psychology part of this. Uh, so um, you've done some fascinating work on this research and, and, and I'm, I just, I'm always blown away when you tell me about this work, but uh, could you explain for the listeners what our voice can tell somebody else about our psychological state? Thank you. That's, uh, you know, a fantastic question that I always love to talk about, because I think emotion is one of the things that we jump to the quickest when we listen to other people's voices. You know, you pick up the phone, you say hello. Speaking of you and your mom, for example, like if, if something is going on with you, your mom is going to know just by how you pick up the phone. You know, you say, hi, mom, or you say, Hi, mom. You know, it's you said exactly the same thing. And yet there's something there that is communicating, you know, that there can be distress. Maybe there can be sadness. There can be anger. There can be a sense of urgency, you know. And of course, some people look into like very, very state situations, like what is the emotion of the person in this moment? There's a lot of research for that. And then some people are more interested in a more trait situation, like can we tell personality from voice? Can we tell if someone has a psychological condition from voice? So it's interesting to think about in that way too, like what's going on in the moment and what's going on in general for the person. And one of the things that fascinates me the most is when people have been through traumatic experiences, are their voices communicating that? You know, if they're reminded of the experience, is some, something happening in the moment to their voice? And is there also something in general that is different about the voices of survivors compared to non-survivors. 
Yeah, so I, I definitely want to ask a follow up on that one. Uh, so I, I know that you've looked into sort of these sort of long term impacts that our experiences, especially traumatic experiences might might have leaving essentially like a trace or a scar on our, our voice that that sounds very negative. And I don't necessarily mean it in that way. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how that how that lasts and lingers with us. Thank you so much for that question. And you know, I I'm getting the sense, myself and my colleagues, that there definitely is something in voice that, you know, is connected to painful traumatic experiences from the past. Exactly what that is, we're not quite sure yet. You know, we're investigating the acoustics. We investigate, you know, perceptual reactions from listeners. But something seems to be there, certainly. And in the work that I did for my dissertation... We particularly became interested in revictimization. Trigger warning everyone, talking about revictimization, talking about physical and sexual trauma. Um, there was a study that had come out a few years before on body language, where they had asked viewers to identify of the people they saw walking who had been assaulted and who hadn't. And apparently viewers with higher psychopathic traits were more accurate in sort of reading who the past survivors were and were not. And by reading that research, I became interested in knowing, you know, do certain people understand from voice if someone is a survivor or not? So I basically replicated the same paradigm, but using very quick snippets um, of survivors and non-survivors, um, just the voice and nothing else. And I recruited listeners. And in my sample, it wasn't so much psychopathy that predicted the accuracy, but it was if the listeners had perpetrated in the past that made them more accurate. And they're not really sure what it is that they heard, you know, and we are still investigating the acoustic component there. Like, can we really find something on the acoustic level that we can say, oh, there's a characteristic here that is a little different there. Um, we're not quite, quite sure yet. That's so, that's so terrifying though, isn't it? That, yes. that not only, um, is trauma and our experiences in life affecting our voice, but that other people are able to, to pick up on that and then potentially target us again because they, they see that we're more uh, vulnerable in some way. Yeah, and of course that is kind of like a darker side of the question, but I also wonder if that could be utilized for empathy. You know, if, if survivors, for example, were to recognize each other, you know, would they gravitate towards each other more? You know, it's an interesting question. Like some people might use that information for evil, but some people might use that information for good. I love that you've given the flip side of that. That that's that's so yeah, I hadn't I should have as an empathy researcher immediately gone to that, but of course I didn't. But no, yeah. So one possibility is that we we might be able to pick up on uh other people that need support, that need our help. Uh so I guess then my next question is. And is this a skill we can learn? Is this something I can learn to do? That is a really good question. I think you could. I have to figure out exactly what that would look like. <laughs> but I think that you could. Absolutely. Because yeah. I think we can become more skilled in understanding what is going on with people's voices. We can have an untrained ear about certain things, and then we can train our ear for certain things. And we, of course, we have to first learn what we are trying to listen for. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the, the other side of that question regarding change is if I have um, 
uh, a vocal signature that is betraying perhaps a, a previous trauma. Can I can I modify that myself if I don't want to have that in my voice? That is a really good question. You know, we now have the study that I was telling you about is now under review. And one of the things that we say in the implications is, you know, if this study was replicated, if this research continued, could voice become part of self-defense practices? You know, just like survivors are taught to walk a certain way and do things a certain way. Could there be a specialized voice training for mm -hmm. speakers to change and mask some of the characteristics that are associated with survivorship? Yeah. Oh, that's a really exciting possibility that that, that might be something that's possible in the future. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I, I want to shift a, a little bit now uh, to talk about uh, vocal stereotypes. Uh, so I wonder, Elisa, if you could start maybe by just explaining uh, what are vocal stereotypes? Thank you. So stereotypes, you know, the vocal kind are very similar to other kinds of stereotypes. And really, to put it in a simple manner is we think that we can tell characteristics of a speaker by listening to their voices. We're often very inaccurate. But the interesting thing about stereotypes is that these ideas that we have tend to correlate among listeners. Like It's kind of like we all carry the same stereotypes, even though they are inaccurate. So if we sort of measure and we ask people, you know, what do you think tall sounds like? What do you think short sounds like? What do you think gay sounds like? What do you think overweight sounds like? What do you think tired sounds like? Um, we all have kind of the same idea and the correlations around the ideas are very high but then when you actually correlate what someone thinks gay sounds like for example with actual voices of people in the community you know they don't necessarily match so it's very very interesting to think about there's this large agreement and yet is the agreement really about truth and there's a lot of evolutionary explanations for why this is because in evolution physical characteristics and voices actually matched a little bit more. And then some people argue that for humans, you know, everything kind of changed a little bit, particularly because of the shape of our skull and larynx compared to other primates. So it's interesting to think about. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. So um, that's, I'm one of those people who would have said, yeah, you know, I, uh, some people sound different to others and I could take a guess and it sounds like my guesses would would be wrong. Uh, yet again, another thing that uh, <laughs> social stereotypes are wrong. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that research. And that's actually a really great segue uh, into our next topic uh, for our episode, which is accent stereotypes. And, and Elif, if I could bring you in here, uh, perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about people's stereotypes about certain accents, how they form, what their impact are. So I specifically specialize on uh, non-native accent stigma. So there's some work on um, more like regional accents because like there's like, if you're from like the South of US and you have a Southern accent, that's like a different than if you have a Boston accent. That's, I, I'm not very, um, very much focused on that. But what I'm more focused on is non-native accent stigma. So when you have a non-native accent, it gives two pieces of information potentially. One piece is that um, you're not an in-group member. You're a member of the out-group. You're not from here. So out-group member, that's the first piece people hear. And then if they can decipher your accent, in my case, they can't. But in a lot of cases, they are. People are actually pretty accurate at that. Um, then what the second piece of information would be that the accent would give a cue about the specific group 
that the person is coming from. And then it would elicit those stereotypes relevant to that specific group. So if, for example, participants in one of my studies were listening to French accents, then that would elicit all sorts of stereotypes about a French individual. So that that is very um, unique to accents that it conveys like different types of cues. And then um, the other piece is obviously the intersectionality piece, right? Because if somebody is, um, if there's that intersection between having a non-native accent and having, for example, um, for example, race is also a huge part of this equation, then that's a different mix that will signal a different um, different set of stereotypes than someone who is like the same um, ethnic or racial background as the participant. Yeah, so can I dig into that a little bit more? Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested in how, um, so we talked about uh, for you at people not not knowing where your voice is from, but knowing that it's from somewhere other than the US, right? So there's still that, that priming of outgroup, I guess. Uh, but then you talked about being a white woman and how mm-hmm. that um, how that then changes it. So when you study accents, do you do it uh, audio only or do you add in those visuals? And, and can you talk to me more about how that mm-hmm. affects it? So it depends what the research question is, right? In a previous study, I did actually look at that intersection. So I actually showed people, um, I showed them LinkedIn profiles of teaching assistants. And that was that was like the crime. And that was the manipulation, rather. And the link, the uh, teaching assistants looked either like a little bit more, they were ethnically ambiguous in both cases, but they looked a little bit more fair skin or a little bit darker skin, depending on the condition. And the results were actually really interesting in the sense that um, it was a very conservative test of the hypotheses, I think. So the results were a little bit of a letdown. So we should do this again next year because I'm running a reboot of that. But what was really interesting was that it seemed very much like an optimal distinctiveness kind of mechanism. So that's the next thing I really want to dig into. So optimal distinctiveness theory is used more about things related to consumer goods and so on. So for example, if somebody's buying a car and then I am marketing the car to, to you, Allison Jane, is like this car is owned by a lot of people, but not everyone. It's like a little bit unique, but not too unique because we don't want to buy the thing that's too unique because that's risky. And we don't want to buy the thing that everybody else because that's no fun so a very similar mechanism emerged in the sense that white participants were interested in befriending people specifically who were a little bit of different from them so if the if the target had a non-native accent or they had a darker skin tone they were really interested they really wanted to befriend this person they wanted to get lunch with them and so on but if the target was too similar to them or too different from them on those two dimensions then they were not interested they were the not interested, not unique enough, not interesting enough, or it's like, this is too far off. I'm not, I don't want to go there. And that was like a very consistent, positive thing that non-native accent seemed to result in. But other than that, people just thought over, overall um, that people with non-native accents were just not super trustworthy, not, not more than trustworthiness. That's more like previous work, but what I specifically found was conscientiousness. They didn't think they would be good people to work with, not necessarily super conscientious, not very responsible people. Huh. All right. So, so what I'm getting is that, that there's an optimum level that, that I, I, sh- I should, I mean, I, 
I don't like the word should here, but but that uh, people will probably report that I am a better colleague and more conscientious if I'm a little bit different from the norm, but maybe not too different from the norm. They will want to be friends with you, but they will still not want to prefer to work with you. So that that's really uh, sticky. But then again, this was a teaching assistant in a very specific context, right? So what happens if, um, let's say, I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in, are there any conditions where having an accent is more beneficial? What are those conditions? So maybe there are other contexts where that's not the case, um, but it, it, is, it is quite possible. But so far, uh, it seems like it's pretty negative. Like yeah. if you can get rid of your accent, I don't know, Eliza, can we get rid of our accents? You tell us. <laughs> There's a lot of people that actually coach speakers into getting rid of their accents or learning new accents my research suggests that to land the job maybe you want to do that but then again personally I would feel really bad about it because it's, it's who I am it's it, it's all stems from social identity theory right my accent signals a specific membership to a specific group and that's who I am so I actually would feel really odd about not having my accent anymore. Um, but mm -hmm. then again, I can see it being useful if it is possible at times as well. Imagine masking it only for an interview. Then you go in the first day <laughs> yes. and you're like, this is how I speak. Hello. <laughs> you know, you you, you guys are, are, are speaking the, the research behind it, what my daily experiences are. So although there is a little bit of loss of identity um, with, with sounding American most of the time, one of the reasons I don't mind too much is that I can go about my daily life here in Green Bay without people sort of stopping me all the time and asking me where I'm from. Uh, and I, I, I'm remembering this this time where, where my mom was actually here visiting. Uh, I, I don't know whether you remember this mom, we were in our local Piggly Wiggly and uh, my mom and dad were there and they couldn't open their mouths without being stopped and asked in a very kind and, and friendly way, you know, where they're from and, and why they were here, etc. That was very funny because they immediately recognized that we were from England. And I think he was one of the men that worked in the pigging movie um, because your dad wanted a boy a bottle of wine. And he just didn't want to stop talking to us. It's really, really sweet. But you wanted to get on with your grocery shopping. <laughs> <laughs> you kept going off and doing a bit and coming back. Are you still talking? Oh, yeah, the stuff was still there after about 20 minutes. It was lovely. I actually wonder whether, as we're talking uh, back to that idea of there being some positive stereotypes, I think that the British accent may be one that has some, some positivity uh, that comes with it a lot of the time. Uh, have you have you generally found that, Mum, when you're in the States, that oh, people respond absolutely. well? We came there last year and we stayed with you and then we hired a car and went around America in your area, in Wisconsin, for a week. And everyone just wanted, as soon as we opened our mouth for roots, to order something to eat or to buy something or just asking the way to go, the American that we talked to would just stop and say, oh, you're English, are you English? <laughs> <laughs> it's always positive. And one lady, we were in a museum in your home, in Green Bay, and the lady asked me to just to keep talking. She said, don't stop. Don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> don't think of anything to say because she just loved it. So only ever had positive something to say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so Elif, have you got any reasons for, for why that yeah. is? Yeah, I, I do actually. I have two. So one is the status, right? Different accents come with different 
group memberships and if we can hear the group membership that will come with its own status having a middle eastern accent versus having a british accent that cues very different group memberships with different uh, perceptions towards and the other piece is if you're british then we know it's your first language we know we know you're we, we know we can comprehend you we know you're very good at this language and that's usually one thing that not necessarily the actual comprehension but perceived comprehension is a part that goes into accent stigma one of the re things people will always say is that well i wouldn't want to get a class from this person because they i can't understand what they're saying and actually there's uh, prior work that also shows that not only in legal context but also in like teaching context people with an native accent get a lower teaching evaluations so, but then again, do you really not comprehend me? Or is it an easy way to say, I don't wanna try to understand you. And it's just, I don't want to say that I'm actually being discriminatory right now, but I'm just gonna say it's yeah. really hard to understand you. So that's an easy way out, right? Like no one wants to admit that they have stereotypes, but it's easier to say, well, you need to speak in this job and I can't really understand you. Yeah, no, so that's the that's the flip side of this, the sad accent stereotypes. And and of course, for our profession, really important and, and life affecting. Yes, I actually yeah. um, use it in a very self-serving way. Sometimes if I have not so good teaching about usually there would be like that one person that just don't, that don't like with you, right? Like there's always that, that the one student that loves you and that one student who's like, this was the worst class ever. And whenever I get that, I always say, because I have an accent it's okay I, I I know how you feel when you get that one teaching review that just makes you want to go home and cry yes so I, I'm, I'm glad you have a, a a way to to reframe those those negative thoughts I don't I guess I don't have those excuses <laughs> something else for me um, I do want to touch on one other thing before before we end today. Um, Aliza, one of the things we haven't really spoken about much yet is voice and performance. And I know that that's a, a big part of your work. And of course, personally relevant to you is, as your vocalist yourself. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how people uh, who work in, in, in fields where their performers and their voice is important to them uh, and how their voices differ and the way they use it differs. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, working with performers is one of the joys of my life, particularly singers. And their voices are influenced by many things. Number one thing is their training, of course. They start with their natural instrument, and then their instrument becomes trained. And of course, the style that they choose will influence their voices even more. Sometimes I have the impression that even just by speaking, I can tell if I'm you know, talking to an opera singer compared to a pop singer, you know, even if they just say, how was your day? There's just something different in the resonance and how they use their voice. Um, but then, you know, once we start doing the performance wellness work and addressing the performance anxiety, the stress, the previous trauma, you know, I see their voices respond to, you know, reactivity of their autonomic nervous system which is something actually that we don't have a whole lot of science about. Um, there's researchers out there who are trying to understand the exact links between the autonomic nervous system and voice. But from an anecdotal perspective, you can definitely start seeing, you know, like the voice will start like cracking. It's difficult to connect, you know, the systems of phonation to the systems of respiration. Maybe the vocal tract will start shrinking because someone is feeling small and so scared of being seen. And everything kind of becomes misaligned. 
And that like powerhouse that they are in non-stressful conditions will start shifting and you'll start seeing that the voice starts responding to the stress. And then we start sort of going into understanding where the stress comes from and why and how it's manifesting and what we can do to shift it. Thank you so much. That's a, another huge area so that the people who, who who use their voice, you know, in their work like that, uh, it's so important for them to, to be able to have this opportunity to change it if they need to um, and ensure that, you know, that the yeah. trauma or any other experiences aren't affecting them. So it's so great that you're providing that that service. And I, I'm now in the back of my mind wondering whether I should go and talk to somebody to see if I can make this this sw switch that I do between English, British English, and uh, American English, um, which I do appreciate being able to flip, but I would like to have conscious control over it uh, a little bit more, <laughs> more than I apparently do. Uh, so thank you so much uh, uh, for coming on here. Uh, I actually just want to give uh, you all a huge thank you uh, for coming on Psychology and Stuff and ask, answering all of my questions about voices and accents. Uh, I've been wondering about these things for, for many, many years now. And so it's, it's really great to, to hear the psychology and the research uh, behind it. Uh, so Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin and the production manager is Rachel Scray. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salek, and our graphic designer is Kimberly Belisi. Special thanks to our guests today, Dr. Lisa Monti, Dr. Aleth Aikazar, and my mom, Mrs. Jean Smith. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcasts, to check out past episodes of this and all of our shows. I'm your host, Austin J. Martin-Gano. Keep being amazing.